Welcome to the You Lead Podcast, brought to you by the Council for School Leadership of the Alberta Teachers Association. Hello and welcome to the You Lead Podcast. In this episode, we present a session with Armand Doucette about his recent book called Hope, Where Are You? This session was originally presented online as part of the ATA Professional Learning Series during the COVID-19 pandemic. Armand is one of the world's foremost pracademics and teachers in education for this digital age. He's a sought-after leader, inspirational speaker, coach, columnist, author of Teaching Life, Our Calling, Our Choices, Our Challenges, in Rutledge's best-selling Leading Change series. He's also the lead author of the best-selling book, Teaching in the Fourth Industrial Revolution, Standing at the Precipice by Rutledge, 2018. He has spoken to tens of thousands of teachers on every continent and key international organizations such as UNESCO, WEF, and the OECD. He has received the Governor General Award for Teaching Excellence in History in 2017, Canadian Prime Minister's Award for Teaching Excellence in 2015, is a Meritorious Service Medal recipient from the Governor General of Canada, is an Apple Distinguished Educator, and was named one of the top teachers in the world by the Global Teaching Prize in 2017. We hope that you enjoy this session. I'm Jeff Johnson. I'm an Executive Staff Officer at the Alberta Teachers Association. Today, we're going to, uh, as our chat today, we're going to focus on um, on a publication that's recently been released, and I'll let the author uh, speak for himself. But first, I'd like Corey and then Mark Sylvester to introduce themselves before we introduce Armin. Yeah, I'm uh, Corey Haley, and uh, I'm also the Communications uh, Director for the Council uh, for School Leadership, which is the ATA Specialists um, uh, Association for, for School Leaders, as kind of the name suggests. Um, I have two uh, young boys who are uh, doing the home thing as well. And we've been lucky enough because uh, in our division, at least all principals have been asked to go to school every single day. Um, We've been lucky enough that they are getting to know my parents, their Oma and Papa, just a little bit better because they are taking care of not only the child minding, but also they have been the online teachers and all that kind of stuff when dad has to go to work and uh, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I'll pass it over to you, Mark. Thanks, Corey. I'm Mark Silva, the past president of the Council for School Leadership. I'm uh, very excited to be here. Armand, I got a chance to see your book just today here and was uh, getting it ready to go out to my parents uh, as uh, part of our newsletter. So thanks very much for being able to share that. I'm excited to, to learn a little more about you and the, the book project today. I've got uh, four children, two older boys with my first marriage and uh, uh, a 19-year-old stepdaughter and an eight-year-old uh, daughter that's at home as well, keeping me very busy and my wife busy as well. So thanks for being here, everybody. And uh, I'll ask Armin, who is a teacher in New Brunswick, to introduce himself and maybe we'll start off the meeting with that. Armin, can you just share who you are and a little bit about what you do in your teaching role, but also in your broader role as as an educator in Canada and worldwide? Sure, sure. I can do that, Jeff. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I'm really excited about it. Not often I get to talk to other Canadians. It's usually internationally. So this is a bit different for me. Uh, I'm a sucker for punishment. We'll start with that. I think that's the best way to describe me. Um, Through, I teach humanities at Riverview High School. I've also taught middle school. I've taught pretty much everything in middle school from physical education to sciences to French and English, uh, a bit of everything. Uh, I've been teaching for 10 years, but I have a past life in coaching, started coaching at a very young age uh, at 13. So I've almost got 27 years. I was actually the technical director for Alberta Soccer South uh, for a period of time. I lived in Calgary for a while uh, before I launched myself into my uh, business uh, profession, which I was a a territory manager for PepsiCo in sales and marketing for seven years as well. So a bit of a broad spectrum of uh, background on me. Um, Locally, uh, I've written uh, three books now, so two books on the teaching profession, uh, mostly on pedagogy. So the first one's called Teaching in the Fourth Industrial Revolution, Standing at the Precipice, 
which was uh, written with five other colleagues that are Global Teacher Prize ambassadors. Uh, I was nominated for the prize in 19, uh, sorry, 19, 2017. Uh, so I'm a top 50 from that year. So a Global Teacher Prize ambassador. Um, so we co-wrote the book and the epilogue is actually written by Andre Schleicher and the foreword by Klaus Schwabs, who's the founder and chairman of the World Economic Forum. And my second book, uh, after the first one came out, uh, I really concentrated on the pedagogy in the classroom and in the digital age. Uh, Andy Hargraves and Pak Tiang asked me to write from, for the Leading Change series with Routledge. They had a lot of people in change leadership, uh, school leadership, uh, district leadership, but no one from the actual classroom perspective writing about change. Um, so my book really addresses the pedagogical practice for today and how to address it. So it's called Teaching Life our calling, our choices, our challenges. And I actually have a third book in the works called Saving Education that will be coming out in the fall if everything works out perfectly. I should have had it done in manuscript given the week ago. That's not the case, <laughs> uh, but working on it. So, uh, and I'm here today because of two things. One, uh, we wrote a children's book during this pandemic. Uh, Elisa and I, a friend from Mexico, and her daughter is a graphic artist, uh, a student in Mexico as well. So she's the illustrator and it's now translated in 40 plus languages around the world. It's got, I think we're now at 250,000 downloads. Uh, the World Economic Forum just wrote an article about it. They have 8 million followers on Facebook. So it's picking up steam. Uh, while this is, while this book is uh, a children's book and it's 40 languages, we also have a goal of a hope movement with that and social media and also a fundraiser for UNICEF. So that's one thing. And then the second one was uh, we co-founded a um, conference called T4. It's kind of funny in Canada, T4. Uh, but it's basically the four topics that we wanted to address. Teacher leadership, teacher collaboration, teacher well-being, and uh, teacher with technology uh, in this new normal. And originally it came about about four weeks ago. Three of us were talking. We said, well, why don't we start something and create an online conference? And today we are now at 75,000 registered for our online conference on Saturday, uh, which if you're trying to run a free event, makes you really nervous about the tech on the back end. Uh, and it's not just in English, it's also streamlined in Spanish and Arabic, and we also have in Russian. So there's a lot of complexities to it. Um, plus my day job, which I have three young kids, uh, a five-year-old, a four-year-old, and a 16-month-old. Uh, so when I said sucker for punishment, I truly am. <laughs> Thanks, Armand. That's uh, yeah. That that's a that's like you got a couple things going on, and I, I think that's uh, pretty pretty interesting. Uh, I want to get into at the start the book, um, and what I'm talking about is uh, hope. Where are you? You talked about uh, how it kind of came about during the pandemic. Do you want to talk to us, perhaps, what was the idea? Uh, maybe what's in it. And, you know, I was expecting from your work to actually open that up when I first saw it and, and see some kind of professional learning book kind of thing. And so I was a little bit taken aback. Was, is, this is your first children's book. Tell us about how that came around. Uh, my wife actually said it's about time I write a children's book because I'm a child at heart, but <laughs> it's, uh, it came about in a couple of ways. Uh, the first one is I've been writing uh, policy reports, uh, independent reports for UNESCO and uh, EI, Education International, during this time. Uh, two of them, one called, being, one called Thinking About Pedagogy in an Unfolding Pandemic, and the other one's called uh, Teacher Leadership, The Now, The Dance, The Transformation which just got released yesterday, actually. So uh, those brought me into some global conversations and webinars and discussions. And I was realizing that hope and resiliency was some of the key themes. So for teachers, it was really about the communication structures and how there was a lack of clarity and a lack of, uh, a lack of understanding of what was happening globally. So started a webcast uh, on my Facebook page and they're all still there. There was 12 interviews. It's called Perspectives in a Pandemic. And what I did is I interviewed the, the big global leaders around the world to bring their voices straight to the masses. Um, so uh, David Edwards, who's the Secretary General, uh, Andres Schleicher, Rebecca Winthrop, who's got a background in uh, emergency education, really talked about how do we bring it back better. Uh, and she also works at Brookings Institution. And a bunch of other people like Vicki Colbert out of Latin America and self-pacing guides for remote learning. So that sort of took care of the teacher side of things. 
and, and uh, those reports sort of took. But when we talked to a friend of ours, uh, Armando Prosico, who is a Global Teacher Prize nominee as well, uh, out of Italy, he's uh, in Bergamo, and he had lost his dad, uh, three aunts, and countless colleagues and friends. And uh, the one thing that struck me was, you know, I can't lose hope, and I got to make sure that I help uh, bring light to the kids' lives. And I thought to myself, what a thing to say when you're going through so much pain. So Elisa and I were in a discussion, and she had just released another children's book. Uh, they had done a few, and I said, why don't we do a children's book on hope during this time? and write about the stories of children. So go from obstacles, challenges, to finding hope, to spreading hope to others, but be real stories that are happening around the world, um, but also shedding light on some of the key issues that our world bodies are worry, really worried about, like child abuse, like uh, trauma teaching, grieving, uh, child marriage, and they're all brought to the forefront in this book. Awesome, thanks so much. I was, you know, as I was perusing your website, it was it was really taken by the fact that number one, the, the artwork in the the book, uh, the language. I, I love the storytelling that you've put together there from all the countries. I, I think this whole global picture that we're seeing right now. I've, I'm talking to some of my social studies uh, teachers and colleagues that are out there in the division, and it's like they're saying this is such a unique opportunity to really bring everyone together. We're all going through very similar things and, and getting a chance to do that. I'm sure the, the folks that are out there in our, our chat today, whether you're uh, teachers or administrators, you're, you're seeing that big connection. Uh, I really like that idea of that, and and I wanted to ask you, Armand, about the how the way that you connected up that with the join the hope movement was that something that sort of attached to you or did you reach out to them uh so the whole movement is actually ours as well so we we kind of planned it as a first off we thought that our leadership across the world was wrong in terms of calling it social distancing should have been really called physical distancing or or uh something else because it's really about social solidarity and global solidarity at this time now, mind you, we do have leaders across the world that don't believe that, but the truth of the matter is that that's the way we're going to get out of it. Um, so we thought it was important to sort of thread a common theme across the stories that really represented uh, what kids were going through across the world. Now, it doesn't shed a light in everything, obviously, and there's numerous other stories, and, and we were worried about representation and so on. Uh, but because of that, one of the things that we realized was that people needed to tell those stories and it wasn't us just telling the stories, but people needed to tell their own stories. So Michael Phelps actually was on ESPN, a uh, famous swimmer and he's talking about how his mental health is really struggling at the moment because of what's going on. And that's the type of stories that people might not want to share or might not be willing to or able to. Uh, so we thought it was important to have a whole movement where people could share their stories and how they connected, but also be able to get kids to talk about it. So by by asking people what was their favorite part of the story and how they connected to it and what they're hopeful for, it really sort of mimics the stories within the book and gives people an opportunity to self-reflect and open those conversations. And, and many parents don't feel comfortable having those conversations, right? So this is a way to start it. So that's where that's where that join the hope movement really came from. And then the third one was really uh, the fundraisers because obviously there's 800 million kids around the world that don't actually have access to online learning. And if I look at all the other topics that we could go into in terms of equity, there's a bunch of them. So we wanted to, we wanted to give it out for free. It would always be free. We wanted anybody to have access to it, but we still realized that not everybody was going to be able to have access to it. So we thought the people that could contribute to paying for the book, well, why don't you make a donation to UNICEF and, and they'll be able to use that for the front lines for the children that really need it. So that's sort of how those three, that three prong thought process came about. I've done a lot of different projects in the past 10 years that have sort of that, those components as we're moving forward with it. Uh, so we had a little bit of practice uh, with that sort of thought process. Thanks for the question. Armin, can you talk a little bit about um, the nature of each of the partners, um, and not all of us may be familiar with them. Like I know you mentioned Education International, which is the organization that all of our teachers unions belong to. So in effect, we all belong to. We have the Alberta Teachers Association, part of the Canadian Teachers Federation, which is then part of Education International. But can you talk a little bit about 
the role of each of the organizations supporting this book and maybe indicate wh why they would do that, what, what they see from their organizational point of view as um, the stake that they have in, in this initiative? Uh, I, I can't answer it for them, but I, I can give you my, my thoughts on why, why they've jumped on board. Uh, I think it really connects all our worlds uh, in many ways and really starts a conversation on uh, the common experience. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment in terms of where we're going with this. And let's be honest, uh, most of our, our upper echelon bureaucrats around the world, the government, is, are very risk averse and rightfully so, right? I mean, that, that's their job and to make sure that kids are safe and so on. But in these uncertain times, it, it takes a bit of risk to be able to innovate and move forward. And, and uh, we're seeing that, that thought process and what is this new normal and how do we progress going forward? And we think that this book gives us an opportunity to at least start to look at what the experience is in remote learning for kids. What is it for parents? What is it for teachers? And it gives us the opportunity to start those conversations. So I think that's where the partners really, uh, and I should say supporters, it's not partners. It's, uh, we have a lot of supporters uh, that have come on board and that see the benefit of it. But I also think it's because of a, a movement of volunteers and it's being done by volunteers. So it's written by volunteers, illustrated by volunteers, marketed by volunteers, translated by volunteers. We've got over 125 volunteers now working behind the scenes to making this happen. Uh, and those types of movement, usually people want to jump on board. And I think there's that common thread of everybody sort of living through this in their own way. And it gives them the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, you talk about the message of the book is is to kind of give kids hope. But I think about that in terms of maybe the people that are here. I mean, teachers have kind of been on the front lines of the educational response to, to the pandemic and, and how we, we deliver that. And I know, you know, from hearing some people around at least our province and our country that some of those teachers are really struggling. You know, any thoughts about how they might maintain hope, um, how they might continue to 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 be resolute and and see their spot in that what do you think about when you're when you're talking about you know maintaining that from a teacher side so uh i i do think that the book is brings out uh it's not really uh, uh finding hope uh, well it's not really about giving hope it's about finding hope so you know you, everybody sort of finds it on their own pace and if you look at the book there's there's little COVID, the germ, and then little hope kicking its butt by the end of it. We put it in there for a sort of a comedic relief because some of the topics are quite heavy. Um, I, and I completely agree. I mean, I've got colleagues around the world that are struggling. I have a friend in New York City in Brownsville, which is the basically the, the trenches of COVID-19 in the U.S. And every time she makes a call, it's either condolences or somebody's sick. And she, she, she's struggling with that. Now, in many other areas, like my own, we haven't had that many cases, but in other areas, there are. So every context is vastly different. And in education for the last, I'd say since 2001, right around when standardized testing became the big thing around the world, and we started comparing systems. And when I'm talking systems, I'm talking province to province or country to country. When we started doing that, we forgot about the context and context sort of uh, disappeared. And context matters, right? That data only is data. Without the story behind it, it doesn't mean anything really. And in some, in some, and this is my own personal belief, but some of the testing I think is absolutely useless because the questions aren't right, right? And you look at the SATs in the United States and so on. So if you look at how people pivoted in this crisis, some of them said, you know what, standardized testing, done. We're not doing it at the moment because there's no authenticity to this test at the moment because of the way that things are happening, and it's not equitable for everyone. And then you have other systems that I've seen, some in the U.S., some across the world, that have said, no, we're keeping the exact same rigor that we have during the school days without any look at the context. So you might have a, a family that has two parents that are working, one high schooler, two middle schoolers, and an element, elementary school student with one iPad. A good, good luck with keeping the same time schedule, right? So, I mean, some, some teachers really have a hard time, and I completely agree with this, but what I'm seeing is 
I'm seeing teachers actually grasping to hope in ways that I've never seen in quite some time. Peer-to-peer. They are peer-to-peer professional development is going through the roof at the moment. Phone calls to, hey, have you used this tool? How do you use that tool? How, do you, how are you engaging your kids? Uh, how are you designing the learning? What's the pedagogical approach to this? A lot of these questions, and there's massive groups that have just popped up online and emails left and right. I mean, look at our conference that we created. And when we talk about hope, the book's not, not necessarily just for teachers to give them hope, but it's for them to help their kids and their students find hope, which also affects teacher well-being, right? So that's what the children's book's for. But if you look at the conference we created and the papers, the reports, what we're writing, it's very much from that teacher perspective. And this conference is teachers for teachers. And one of the topics is teacher well-being because teachers need to understand when to say no, how to structure their working hours, how to be, uh, how to be able to collaborate through this virtual world how to navigate which tools can work and which tools don't. Uh, And the reality is we're getting bombarded by tech at the moment with all these free tools, but there's a lot of them that are unethical and not every teacher understands which one is and which one isn't. Right. Um, So these are the types of things that we're hoping that is giving teachers hope is the fact that we're addressing it in other ways, but this book's very much about starting those conversations and helping you navigate some of these contexts but also giving you an understanding of what other people are doing. If you're in a pandemic privilege, you might not know what other people are feeling if you don't ask the question, right? So the first question I ask every time I make a phone call is, how are you doing? What's going on in your life at the moment? Uh, is there anything you want to share, right? Those are the types of questions that you have to ask, even of your staff, really, uh, because you never know. I, I don't know if that answers the question, Corey, but I'm, I'm hoping it did. I went on a bit of a rant there. I apologize. No, I appreciate that. Thank you, Armand. Jeff's used to it. He's used to me ranting. <laughs> Maybe, Jeff, do we want to open it up to a lot of the folks that are out there if there's any questions? I see Carrie has a question um, here, and I'll just read it. Uh, she's saying, um, I think so often as educators, we give hope through our reassurance to those we love and lead that everything's going to be okay. Because this is such uncharted territory, we don't have uh, that go-to anymore. We don't have maybe a script. In addition to continuing to build relationships and connections, how do we reassure and help them to find that hope? What are some of the go-tos, I guess, those, those, kind of, those, um, those things to say that, um, that you've seen to be effective? We're all in this together. That's number one. Uh, you know, that's the first of first and foremost. Uh, I think the second one is everybody take a collective deep breath. We're, we're in, we're in uh, trauma education or crisis learning. It's not remote learning. It's not home learning. We're not expecting you to become professionals in two hours. Uh, so those are things that we can reassure. Uh, I think the third one is, particularly as administrators, create a strong communication feedback loop and listen to it with authenticity. Meaning, you know, what your personnel is telling you is quite important. What your parents are telling you, quite important. What your students are telling you, quite important. And then you got to navigate through that and figure out, okay, well, what's, what do we need to do? things in terms of is in uncertainty, creating a certain amount of structure and a certain amount of uh, level-headedness and a certain amount of uh, being able to navigate without a compass. Um, so, I mean, those, well, that's why we're in positions of leadership, right? Is to rely on that foundation of professionalism that we have and knowledge and experience and say, you know what, we can get through this in some way, shape or form. Uh, now there are issues that we can't do anything about at the moment, but that we need to, uh, look at. So one of them is the equity issue. The equity issue is a major issue across the world. That's why UNESCO created the global coalition to try to look at social programs across the world to level the playing field. But that's something that as teachers and as teacher leaders and as uh, school leaders that we need to be advocates about. Again, we've put too many band-aids on our schools to try to address issues that really need to be brought forward and we need to be adamant and advocates about. So I'll give you an example, Uh, you know, food programs. How many schools have food programs that are over 150, $200,000 a year, if not more? And is that realistic for that to come out of the school budget uh, when we are giving three meals a day to prisoners? 
right? And these kids can't afford it. It's not their fault they were born in a family that didn't have the social economic tools. So why aren't we feeding them? And why isn't that on our taxes? So those are the types of things that we could advocate for that can help out. And it's one of the major things that was happening when we closed down the schools was basic needs, right? Maslow before Bloom. That's what we wrote in our pedagogical, uh, thinking about pedagogy in an unfolding pandemic, is we need to address that. Uh, so that's something that I think we need to do. I, I think we did a very poor job across the world uh, in terms of teachers as first responders in the communication structure uh, during this response. So I'll give you an example of that. Rebecca Winthrop talked to me about this a lot during our webcast. But in emergency situations, usually teachers within the first couple of days contact all their families that are connected to their classroom to find out how they're doing, what do they have at home, what do they need, just simple questions, right? Most of the systems across the world waited a week, if not two, if not three, to have those conversations, right? It should have happened in the first couple of days. And I'll give you one example why. If you're in Toronto or Edmonton or Calgary, where there's multiple languages, and English isn't the first language, or French isn't the first language, depending on which community you're in, the communication structure to go from the news to the families and making sure that they're abiding by physical distancing, let's say, is not necessarily getting heard by everyone. We can help that through teachers as first responders in the communication structure. But most of the crisis management response for communication comes from the business world. And the business world, it's one voice, one person, nobody else talks. Right? I mean, you look at Washington when Donald Trump makes a mistake, one person starts to talk and that's it. That's the only person that's going to talk for this period of time over the next three weeks, right? Uh, and that's sort of been the response from our governments across the world has been one voice. But in this situation, it's about dissemination of communication. It's about dissemination of information. So this is where teachers as first responders can help with the whole process. We're here. We got you. We're going to continue to be here. We're going to continue to help you out. Right. So those are some of the things that we can help out there in that situation. Um, I, I think in terms of hope for teachers, uh, you're looking at trying to streamline some of the tools that are out there. We all have tech experts in our areas that this is what they do. This is what they know. We don't need to create task force to all of a sudden go search everything that's out there. No, it's really about connecting the right tool to your pedagogical style and to make sure that we can design that learning experience for that style as long as it's engaging those kids. So one of the things that we looked at in our report was uh, about scheduling. How often do you want to be online from K to two, three to five, and so on and so forth? Why do you want to be online? Is it about connectedness? Is it about relationship? Is it about synchronous learning? And if it is about connectedness and relationship in elementary school, then what type of plans are you sending to the parents so that they can follow quite easily? And is it resources that they can find? Or is it resources that they need to buy? Is it resources that they have online? And are you taking into account the whole context? So those are the types of things that we've been thinking about. And how often do you want to send emails out, all that type of stuff? So I think for I think to answer Carrie's question is it's a multiple prong approach, but we have the tools to be able to lead during this time. There's no question there. I don't doubt my profession at all. We have the professionals to be able to do it. Oftentimes what happens is we're handcuffed by different policy, different reasons, and we're not allowed to do it, even though we know it's the right thing to do in some sort of, some instance. So Armand, what do you, um, you've talked a little bit about what teachers can do, but you've also talked about a movement coming out of this book. Um, do you see any unique ways that teachers or those of us in education might uh, move forward to engage parents to uh, make things go beyond the school community as far as, as, uh, as creating a response to this, creating a movement out of this? Yeah, it, it's a good question, Jeff. Uh, you, you know, movements are funny. Sometimes you have the best intentions and they can roll, right? Like everybody jumps on board, it's created it, it's, it's just part of who you are, right? And then other times it just takes a bucket of ice and you dump it over top of your head and you challenge three more people, right? And it's, it works, right? So, you know, we, we wanted sort of a social media conversation starter. It, we call it a movement, but the reality is, is that it's not a movement until people join, right? 
So uh, we really wanted it to connect people and connect their stories. And we're seeing that right now. We're seeing people share their stories via video. We've had some from Australia, England, Canada, all over the world, actually, Latin America, Africa. So people are sharing their stories and how they connect with it and, and what they're hopeful for. Uh, but what we're also seeing is that our supporters are coming up with different things. So the Lego Foundation created six resources for all six stories. And you can find them on our website. Uh, and they're quite unique and they're quite interesting. But it's something that parents can do at home, right? So then they're sharing those stories. We have uh, Scratch out of MIT Media Lab in the U.S. that actually created characters in Scratch. So now you can code your own story with our characters, which that I never thought would happen, right? So that's pretty cool as well. Um, but we also have teachers that are using it as read-along. Uh, we've given away the Creative Commons license. So anybody can do whatever they want with it. They can read it to their, they can read it to their classes. They can use it to build upon stories. We really don't care as long as it helps. That's the goal. And so people have been using it like Pratham Books in India have actually separated it in six different stories and one key story. And they're letting kids build upon those stories uh, and then so they're getting a massive amount of downloads as well. It's a work in progress, right? There's some of the books that definitely have some some errors in it. We just found one in the English, which I was uh, flabbergasted by because I thought we had edited it properly. But it's a work in progress. And when you do something in four weeks, there's going to be errors in it. So anytime you see something, let us know. Uh, but it's really about uh, um, uh, participating in it and, and using it. We had a school in Denmark that actually used Kate's story to create a phys ed class. So they talked through the story, they did the yoga poses, they told their own story, and they use it sort of as a trauma circle. So that's kind of interesting as well. Uh, teachers are extremely creative, and especially during this time, they're trying to figure out ways to engage it. If it can help, use it. And if it can't, put it aside. That's the thing that, that really struck me, Armand, I was looking at the book and going through that was getting our chance for our teachers to say, sharing this out with our, their students, um, and getting them to generate their own ideas and then to start thinking that global perspective. I think that's just a, a huge opening that you've given to a lot of our teachers and our, our kids who are going to be able to now go out and tell their story because everyone's got a story. What did you do in COVID-19 in 2020? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's an excellent way to really give a segue into that. So I appreciate you doing that. Thank you. Well, th thank you. I appreciate that, Mark. And one thing that I saw that was really interesting was, um, I had, there are some kids that were using the English version to teach English to their parents that are not English speakers uh, by using the other version that was in their language. So Korean to English. And so they were discussing the book and the parents were reading it in Korean. They were reading it in English. So, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways to use it. And it really depends on the age group. Really. I love that. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Jeff, I should hire you as my PR guy. I'm looking at the chat group and you got pretty much everything in there. What's I can send a, my baby pictures if you want. That might add to it. <laughs> what's the best place to find those digital resources you were mentioning that uh, the folks at Lego and others have put together? Yeah, I'll put it on the site. It's called uh, hopewhereareyou.com is where it's at. That's where you can find it. I should have probably linked that with the www, but it, they're on that site at the moment. Uh, I want to I want to follow up with something you said earlier, but it's also related to to this hope thing. I imagine this book would not have happened if, if COVID didn't happen. And I'm interested to get your take because you've got a much more global perspective. There are some, some lessons that we have learned through this that will actually help us to get better, I think. <laughs> and so some of the contributions and some of the things we've learned and I'm interested to know from COVID and from having even the opportunity to step back, what are you seeing as some of the ways that we can come back to school better? Like, what are the things that we have learned through this process that, that we can actually take forward to say, hey, we're going to actually improve education. And, and maybe if you want to talk to the global context, but also to the Canadian context. Uh, that, that, that's a great question. Um, I've got, I've got a couple of points with that one. Um, the, the first one is, I think we've taken a collective deep breath in terms of, we've always talked about 
we're flying in a 777 and we're trying to fix education as we're flying it in the air, which makes absolutely no sense. So we just band-aid it and we never address the root causes, right? So this is obviously not the way we wanted education to stop, uh, but it, it has stopped. And now we have an opportunity to sort of take a look at it, reflect and figure out how do we want to build it back? And, uh, you know, if you look at emergency response, the two things, uh, the two last points, the key ones are uh, do no harm during the emergency. And then the last one is build it back. Better. So if I take those two, some systems across the world have done harm. They've poured on teachers, teachers are burning out. They've created unrealistic expectations. Uh, unrealistic outcomes. They haven't streamlined it. They haven't looked at their context. Uh, they've continued to teach to the test realistically. But, you know, my, my second book really talks about teaching in two ways. It talks about a profession and an occupation. And in areas where we have strong professions uh, and strong professionals, so uh, a pre-service education program that makes sense, uh, university-driven internship, uh, a lot of rigor to it, uh, systems like Canada, like Singapore, like most of the Scandinavian countries apart from one, uh, you know, those are the ones that, and with social programs, the social democracies, they're doing quite well at the moment, right? Because we're taking care of people first. So that I hope is the number one learning is that people come first and it's really about teaching to the whole child. We had a movement there around 2010 to 2016, 2017, that people were streamlining only literacy and numeracy scores. It was all about literacy and numeracy. Everything got pulled back to literacy and numeracy. So if you didn't have the right literacy score, you're getting pulled out to phys ed, or you're getting pulled out of numeracy to do extra help. And not really addressing the whole child. So I think that's, that's one of the first things that I think people need to start reflecting on. If we want healthy societies, you need to build gyms to have people active. If you want healthy societies, you need to have meals plans. If you want healthy societies, you need to have, you know, community gardens within schools and bring the elderly in there to help them out and volunteer, right? It's, it's not hard. It's just we lack the willingness to do it because there's so many policies that are put into place that counter what we know is good practice, right? So I think that's something that we really need to look at. And I think that's something that we've learned across the board. The second one is... I think we started to realize why teachers were not jumping on the board bandwagon when it comes to uh, tech. And the main reason why is because you're doing your job twice. Like if you really think about it, if you have tech and you only have 50% of the class that can do it and 50% of the class are handing it in through technology, then you got to figure out the paper trail. Why the heck are you going to do that? It makes absolutely no sense at all. So in terms of if they don't fix that equity part, then technology is not going to be the savior that everybody believes it is because they're not going to invest in it. They're going to invest in it one off. It's going to break down within three years. And then you got to figure out what you're going to do with all that expensive tech. So that's an issue. And same thing as when they gave us laptops, you know, years ago, and they thought that it was going to change and revolutionize pedagogy or teaching. The problem is that they did not concentrate on the pedagogy. And the pedagogy and the teaching practice is what's key. And I think people are realizing that around the world. Blended learning is not complex. All it is is to have an online presence, a virtual presence, and a physical presence, and making sure those two worlds intertwine. Then it's about the engagement part, which really is about self-pacing guides. Vicky Colbert in Latin America has been doing this for years with Escuela Nueva with a lot of success. We flipped it that way in my class a, a while ago where it's not about grading for sorting and, or assessment for sorting and grading. It's really about, okay, you've got this, great, let's move on to the next thing. And it's a stepping stone. You've got this essential, you've got this essential, you got your points for that. And if it's an extension, then we might have a rubric and there might be a bit of sorting and grading there. But the reality is, is that those self-pacing guides can really help with the synchronous and asynchronous. So I don't think it's that crazy. Now, there is a lot of professional development to choose the right tool to be able to enhance great pedagogical practice. And not every tool is created the same. Some of them are absolutely worthless. Uh, but I think that's where people don't really get it, is that technology will only enhance the learning with great pedagogical practice. 
If it's bad pedagogical practice with a great technological tool, it's still crap at the end of the day, right? Like, the, I mean, that's the best way to say. So uh, I think we're realizing that overall. Uh, and I think the third one that I'm really seeing is teacher leadership in terms of driving these solutions and, and, uh, and school leadership. Teacher leadership and school leadership I put together, I mean, it's intertwined. Uh, but I, I, I'm really seeing that because it's, and, I, and there's a need for government to understand centralized, centralized decision-making and decentralized decision-making and schools understanding their own context and their communities need to have the decentralized power to be able to make decisions that might go against the grain that what they decide at the higher level because rural schools and urban schools shouldn't be the same policy, right? Uh, low social economics versus high social economics, not the same policy in terms of uh, what you're going to do for that school at that time. You know, you're going to need help for hardware, bandwidth, and so on, versus the other one might not. So there's always that famous one that says equity, uh, equal, uh, you know, those famous pictures you see with the baseball field and they have different boxes and everybody either has a different box or they have the same box. And so at the end of the day, I think leadership is really about making the right decision at the right time. Uh, and I think we're seeing that in many areas, but we're also seeing some regression and mark my words, Corey, the biggest thing that I think we're going to see coming out of this is that we're going to see massive austerity measures that are going to attack education in way, different ways and forms. And one of them is going to be in some country, they're going to say, well, we have this expert teacher. We're just going to put him in front of a, uh, in front of WhatsApp or in front of a phone. And he's going to communicate it to all our children. And we'll just hire local children to facilitate that, which would be absolutely horrendous practice. But somebody's going to try Armand, one of the things I'm, I'm looking at your document uh, on uh, research in the, in the or uh, sorry pedagogy in, in the age of COVID and <coughs> the Maslow before Bloom section. And I know you're a high school teacher. I look at this book that's just been released, and it's probably not a book that too many 16, 17 year olds would say, "Gee, I want to read that." But I, as we're talking no. and talking about Maslow before Bloom, I'm thinking about all of the people involved in, in education. I have two adult age children who are teachers. I'm, I'm a former school leader and I work with school leaders on an ongoing basis. I hear from all of those adults, from the teachers in Alberta, from the school leaders in Alberta, that this is affecting them as well. So um, I like, one of the things I like about this book is that it, it it's a discussion driver. I can see high school teachers using it with grade 12 students to talk about what's our world like, that kind of thing. But um, you also got me thinking about, I heard Valerie Hannon, who's the director of the innovation unit in, in London, and she was in a webinar, uh, which would have been at midnight London time. So I have a great screen grab of her sleeping <laughs> while, while Tony McKay in Melbourne was asking questions. But she, she used the phrase, she, as she saw it, that this pandemic has just that COVID has just kicked the door in on the education system and that there's an opportunity here through COVID. And I, I agree with her. And we've just talked about how that opportunity might be used for ill. But um, how do you see um, hope? Where are you? And discussions about what schooling should look like in, in the time of, of a pandemic. How do you see that as being, or do you see that as being an opportunity to um, create a new system or to build a new a system where Maslow before Bloom really is a reality, not just for the students, but for the teachers, for the school leaders, and for the parents who are all involved in the education of our young people? It's a great question, Jeff. Uh, I think we're coming to a head in terms of a profession. Um, you know, occupation is, when I talk about profession and occupation, Occupation, I'm very much looking at those systems that are hiring teachers after six weeks of training, training uh, in classroom management after having done a bachelor's degree. And then they're sent in some of the worst socioeconomic areas or in some of these disaster zones. And they're trying to make they're trying to help. And really, those would be the areas where our, our expert pedagogues and people that understand how to build partnerships with communities and build relationships with kids. Those are really where those people should be going, right? So it's, 
I'm seeing that aspect of it as very scary because we are going to be missing, I think it's 69 million teachers by 2030, very much driven by sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, but those are massive numbers, right? And as a, as a uh, politician or as a government leader, I got to figure out a way to make that happen. Uh, and we've seen some of these decisions throughout the last couple of years that have been lack, less than ethical, really. So that's one aspect. But in terms of hope, I think it's really about how we approach it. So uh, we have a pedagogical toolkit, right? And there's a lot of edu celebrities coming out of the U.S. In, in particular with, you know, this is the be-all, end-all pedagogical practice. And you do this, you will be the best teacher in the world. Uh, that's a bunch of BS, right? You, you need to use the right pedagogical practice at the right time for the right reasons. And there's so many different other things that are happening at the same time that, you know, sometimes you're going to fail. Sometimes you're going to get it right. Uh, but with UDL, it gives us a good checklist to, to go through before we need to hit that. I kind of use that experience of, I don't know if you guys have ever watched the show House, but it's about this doctor that usually gets the most complex cases and basically other doctors have gone through the checklist and they get to the point where they're not sure and then he needs to figure it out. Well, then they go about the episode and he finds it through his professionalism and so on. Forget the fact that he's a drug addict and an alcoholic in the show. That's just add some tra trauma or drama to it. But overall, the profession-wise, it makes sense. It's a bit like that guy that landed the a plane in the Hudson uh, River in New York. The checklist for pilots, it's about 220 different things that they need to go through before they, they fly off, right? So it's a checklist of things. And if you look at the professionalism to be able to land on that plane on that river, you need to be a heck of a pro. So having the checklist is not bad. It's just if that's the only thing you've got, you're in trouble. So by teaching to the whole child, I think part of what we need to understand is that the pre-service uh, pre education needs to change a bit. And our understanding of con continuing learning needs to change a bit. So one of the things that I know I didn't do much in my uh, pre-service was how to build relationships with partners in the community, how to handle conflict resolution with parents, how to do communication with other adults, right? These are all the art part of teaching, but they're key parts of what we do, right? Uh, and they're key things that enhance that learning experience. Then we have that second part about motivation. So if you look at the zone of proximal development for outcomes, well, it's the same thing for social emotional. It's the same thing for competencies. It's the same thing for skills. And a really good teacher is almost a puppeteer in understanding when to press what and that, you know what, I might press a bit here on competencies, but that means I got to let go a bit here on curriculum outcomes for this one. But then I'll push on the curriculum outcomes and then maybe let go a bit here on the skills it's, it's, it's a game. It's back and forth and got back and forth. And for people that have coached a lot of sports or music or art, you have sort of an understanding of pressing those buttons and, and understanding the flow of how to generate that, right? It's a different type of classroom management. So I call it the art and the science uh, part of our job. And I think we need to get a lot better at the art part of our job uh, because we're really good at the science part. We're really good at understanding looking at tests, looking where the gap is and trying to figure out the way to go forward in our PLCs and so on. But I think that's something that I, I, I hope we're going to do moving forward. And then I hope we're going to schedule our days based off the student at the center, but understanding that teacher well-being goes hand in hand with that. So, uh, you know, giving new student, new teachers coming in uh, seven different classes in middle school because they're the rookie and they're struggling, and there's a reason why people are leaving three years in, right? I think it's 50% of teachers leave within three years around the world. Well, you know, that paying your dues, yes, I agree with it in some ways, but in other ways, we got to give some sort of uh, life support to, to our teachers, a mentorship programs, onboarding. Business does this great. We do it very poorly in education, right? So that's something that needs to change. Uh, when I say students at the center, uh, I mean the planning process, right? And we need governments to not think four years, but think 30. And it's not popular. It's not sexy. Probably isn't going to get you reelected, but your children are going to live on a better earth. And we need to make education apolitical, number one. 
everybody on the same board, everybody together, 10 year processes, processes. Like if you look at Singapore and Finland, they don't change every second minute. They pivot, right? They put something into place and they pivot, but they don't change it, right? We have wholesale changes in a lot of systems, right? Uh, some systems have 150, 170, 180 initiatives for one year. Well, what are you doing, right? Like there should be three, right? Let's concentrate on students in the center uh, and let teachers. And, and a lot of people don't understand leadership in the sense that we are, we are in service of the people below us. That's what leadership is. You're in service of the people below you. You're not in service of the people up high. Mind you, that's what they think. You're in service of the people below you. So as a teacher, I'm in service of my students. I'm in service of those parents. I am trying to help them develop. So that's something that, you know, I think we need to take a look at. Because if we're looking at 30 years down the road, then I think we're going to change how we do physical education. I think we're going to change how we approach mental health. I think we'll approach uh, how, we, how we do pedagogy and how we do co-teaching and how we approach how we design schools. Uh, I think those are a bunch of things that we need to look at if we're going to move forward in the right way. And then tech can enhance that use properly. I think those are the things that I'm sort of hoping for, Jeff. Yeah, and I like Gwendolyn here. Quality versus quantity. That's perfect. That's exactly it. Armanda, maybe I can shift a little bit here. I wanted to pursue the idea with the T4 conference coming up with. So we've got 6,500 or more teachers that are going to be coming and joining this conversation that you're one of the co-chairs with. How is that going to work? What's the, what, is, what are you guys hoping to get from that? Uh, so really this one is to, uh, sometimes I wonder if I shouldn't stop dreaming at the, during the day, I'll be honest. Uh, but really this one was about the conversations that we were hearing and how, how we wanted to have a conversation driven by teachers, led by teachers, and that teachers realize that we do have the tools to be able to move forward. But there's four key topics that we saw that really needed to be addressed and uh, really needs to be brought forward. So we tried to create the most engaging conference we could uh, and uh, the most participative that we could based off what the numbers were, right? Because we're looking at, we're now, I just got the last numbers, we're close to 78,000 teachers that are going to be, that are registered. Now that being said, you know, as well as I do, who knows what number is going to happen on Saturday, but those numbers are massive. Uh, so we're hoping that with those four topics, teacher well-being, teacher leadership, teacher technology, and teacher collaboration, it can help people have those conversations via social media as we are having the panelists and as we are bringing in some of the world leaders in education to talk about it from their point of view. It's to help bridge those conversations and help peer-to-peer -peer reflection and peer-to-peer uh, feedback and peer-to-peer -peer, uh, collaboration throughout the world. You know, we talk about remote learning as if it's this all new thing, but the reality is, is a lot of places around the world have been doing it for quite some time and have been doing it quite well, right? If you look at one of the countries that pivoted the quickest during uh, the COVID-19 was actually Uruguay, which is not a country that most people would think about, uh, but Uruguay actually pivoted quite quickly from Friday to Monday to online learning. They had approached it. They had looked at the equity issues. They looked at bandwidth. They had looked at software and hardware, and they were ready for it. And it's not a country that you would perceive to be one of the leaders in those fields. Uh, again, in Latin America and remote learning, uh, if I look again at Vicky Colbert and what she's done with Esquila Nueva and with radio and television self-pacing guides, I mean, that in that context, they've proven to be quite incredible at it. Canada is actually one of the leaders in remote learning. Uh, which is not necessarily known, but we had originally way back in the day, uh, the, our mountain police would actually deliver um, school packages to students that were in rural areas, right? And that's one of the first parts of remote learning. And we understood how to the self-pacing guide because you don't get enough feedback. So I'm not saying it's perfect, but we do have examples that are out there. Uh, and that's why T4 came up about is that we have a lot of, great examples around the world. We just need to open up the conversation and teachers trust teachers, right? It, we don't trust the gimmicks. We don't trust the next person that's coming up with the newest PT Barnum uh, charlatan magical experience that now they want to try on us. We trust other teachers that have done it. And in this situation, I think it's 
it's something that uh, we're, we're capable of giving it to them. Uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, it's not something I'm going to do every day, uh, but hopefully it's going to bridge those conversations. Awesome. Thanks very much. I'm looking forward to the conference on Saturday. Thanks, Mark. Hopefully you'll get a little something. I know it's quite early <laughs> where you guys are. You know what, uh, Armand, I think that uh, seeing not, not too many other questions in the, in the chat bar. Oh, I do have got one. Uh, one from Diane. Where can we learn more about these self-pacing guys? You know what, Diane? I was thinking the exact same thing. Um, you've referenced them a few times. Seems like an interesting practice. Where might we be able to, to get our hands on some of those exemplars or maybe some of those things? So uh, I've seen some. Uh, I can't remember where the websites has been a while ago because I created my own. Uh, once I saw what was out there, I really needed to create my own based off the curricula and based off my own students. And they really pivot every year, Diane. Um, I do know that Microsoft has some, uh, Apple has some stories about it. The, the tech industry do have some, uh, Vicky Colbert does have it on Escuela Nueva, I believe. Uh, I didn't go check, but I'm pretty sure it's still there. Uh, Harvard Graduate School probably does have some of the self-pacing guides as well. Uh, but I, I'm a firm believer in creating your own based off uh, the ages of your student, what you're teaching them, what you're trying to get out in terms of outcomes. At my school, we divide it between essentials and extensions and projects. So I have self-pacing guides for each of them, but I also have scaffolding practice uh, for independent learning by the students. So every student I sort of have, I'm gauging across and I'm saying, okay, these guys are pretty independent. They're, they're able to put this process in place for the next two weeks off these four things that I want to get done off the self-pacing guide. So they can plan that on their own. They come back to me and I'm a project manager in that situation. I say, okay, those are the deadlines. This one's a bit tight. Are you sure? And then they might say something, well, I've got hockey practice. I've got ballet. I've got this. So I can only work on it that night. So that's why I'm doing it this way. Makes sense. Let's try it. Let's see how it works out for you. Maybe you should come during class time to do something else. And then there might be other ones where I actually go the scaffolding step by step. So for these four essentials that we have in this month, you need to have this one done by this time and you need to have these things done. So you need to have first draft here, second draft here, third draft here. And then as they progress and they get better at it, then I give them more independence. Um, so I teach high school, grade 11s and 12, about 80% of them are a lot more independent and that's good. I always have about 20% that really struggle. I have to hold them by the hand for the first six weeks, but then I let them go. At some point, you got to be good in the wild. Uh, and then my grade nine and my grade 10s, it depends. It really depends on uh, where they're coming from and how much they've done because it's also a new way of approaching assessment as well, right? I'm not looking for the right answer necessarily. I'm looking for a complexity in the answer that they might not be able to give to me yet. So uh, it's hard for particularly my high-end students because they're used to just having the right answer at the right time. So they're used to getting a 90 to 100 on a test. They've always used to get 90 to 100, and then all of a sudden they're getting feedback and they're getting constructive criticism and they're wondering what the heck's going on. And the conversation with the parents in that situation ends up being, I'm saving you $10,000 first year semester at university because they would be dropping out if they can't handle this constructive criticism right now. And what I'm trying to do is get them to think outside the box and being able to be an independent learner, which they are not at the moment. 90 to 100 does not mean you're an independent learner. It could mean you're an independent studier, but maybe not an independent learner. So we have those discussions and we build upon that. I hope that hopefully that answers your question, Diane, but uh, I'm always available. Jeff's got all my contacts and uh, I'm always available for anybody that wants to have those discussions. I can share my self-pacing guides and, and what I create. Um, but it seems to work for my students, uh, but it also works for my personality and how I teach. And I tell everybody that I teach my way because it fits my personality and that's how I connect with students and that's how I build relationships. I wouldn't be able to do it in other ways that are quite successful as well and have proven to be quite uh, efficient, right? Uh, and productive. Everybody's got their own style and it fits for them. And yes, we need to pivot, we need to improve and we need to learn. But for this, this it works for me. All right, Armand, um, an hour's gone by. 
seemed like it was quicker than an hour. Um, just wanted to thank you so for so generously giving of your time. I know it's what is it seven in the evening there in New Brunswick now. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for I'll dipping have to into. Send a thank you note to my wife because she's doing a bedtime with all three of them, Jeff. That's <laughs> well, we're honored that you you've done so. Um, you're going to come to U Lead right in April, in Banff. As long as I'm allowed to travel, I'll be there. Okay. Well, we hope to see you at at U Lead. We know you'll be a good presence there. And to everyone who's joined in, thanks so much. And uh, we'll say farewell for now. Thanks all. Thank you, everybody. Thanks.